Now that we have your attention, just uh, let me welcome you. My name's Dave. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Sedaris. So glad that you're here with us. Uh, if you're new with us, you've stumbled upon a pretty new church. We're only 15 months old, and so we're glad that you're here. And kind of one of the things we talk about a lot here at Sedaris, if you um, either read in the bulletin or there's some sort of vision booklets on the back table, um, no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, whether you find yourself far from God or near to Him, uh, we really are glad that you're here to come and consider with us who God is and what He's like and what it means to live according to His Word. So we'll be studying uh, what He has to say uh, for us today, but I just wanted to welcome you and thank you for being here with us. If you've got your Bibles, you can uh, pull them out, or there's some in one of the seat backs in front of you. You'll notice uh, there's no wood pews anymore. Um, those are gone. And uh, the church that we rent from switched them out with these comfy chairs, so please don't fall asleep. Um, but, you know, all, any, anything new takes a little getting used to. I loved the pews. They had a special spot in my heart, but I think these will do just fine. So grab a Bible there. You can pull it up on your phone. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25. If you need to use the table of contents, no shame in that. I use it all the time. And we're going to be looking at a parable. We're actually, this is the last parable that we're going to look at in our series on the parables. We've been here for about 12 weeks. And uh, this is sort of the culmination or the end of the parables. And as you'll see, uh, there's a unique aspect of the kingdom of God. Because the parables are always about the kingdom of God. And, and this week, there's a unique future part of the kingdom that Jesus will talk about in this parable. So turn there with me, if you will. And as we're doing that, I just want to kind of set up what we're going to be talking about today. Um, in the Christian life, there are certain paradoxes, certain things uh, that we do or that we're called to that are a little bit different uh, than the rest of the world. And to some, they might seem like contradictions. How can these two things coexist? But actually, they're not contradictions, they're paradoxes, which means they might seem not to fit, but upon further review, they can work together. It's just very rare. And so um, right now, we've got about 25 people from our church going through uh, an emerging leaders class, uh, which is really exciting. These are folks that sort of have been identified as stepping in and, and taking ownership of things. And so we're doing some, a year-long training with them, uh, so you'll be praying for them. But one of the things we go through is this matrix, we call it a discipleship matrix, and it's kind of what does it look like to follow Jesus, and there's four quadrants. There's spiritual vitality, there's biblically and theologically grounded, there's self-aware and on mission. If you can kind of do each of these four, you start starting to get an idea of what it means to follow Jesus. And um, in three of these quadrants, uh, in each of them we sort of say, this is characterized by, like someone who is doing well in this quadrant would be characterized by this, and um, three of them have these sort of Christian paradoxes. So in spiritual vitality, what does it mean to be spiritually vital? We say that people that are spiritually vital are able to joyfully struggle. See how that's a paradox? How can you have joy and struggle at the same time? But it's not a contradiction. It's actually possible. So joyful struggle. Um, another in the self-aware quadrant, uh, people that follow Jesus have this weird combination. They're humbly confident. Say, so how can you be humble and confident? It's a paradox, but it can happen. And I know you probably can think of people that are both humble and confident. 
And then in the on mission quadrant, we talk about living in healthy tension. To be on mission uh, for Jesus means to have healthy tension in your life. Isn't tension always unhealthy? The answer is actually no. It's a paradox. And today we're actually going to be looking at another paradox of the Christian life, which I call patient urgency. Now, how do you be both patient and urgent at the same time? Again, it's a paradox, and few find this magical balance, but it's the balance that Jesus calls us to, and we'll see that in the parable today. Um, as I sort of prepared for this message and thought about this paradox of, of patient urgency, the, the thing that kept coming to my mind was the airport. And I think there's two kinds of people in the world. I'm just going to broadly generalize because I love to do that. Um, two kinds of people. There's kinds of people like my wife who love to get to the airport as early as possible for a flight. I mean, if we could get there four hours early, she would be happy. Now, these are also the kind of people that when they turn on the news and they hear the newscaster say, a little bit extra traffic at the airport today, you might want to give an extra hour. She's like, that is true. And I say, no, they're trying to bump ratings. <laughs> Snowstorms and traffic at the airport are the two things that get people to watch the news. There's another group of people, sorry, uh, she was here when I said this in the morning, so she was fine with it, I asked her. Um, there's the other group of people, and that's people like me. And my goal in life is to be able to get out of the car, get through security, and have a brisk walk and pace, and not break that pace and walk all the way down the ramp onto the plane and take my seat, and the jet goes off, okay? Yeah. Two kinds of people. And as you can tell, <laughs> my wife and I, we have some marital conflict surrounding how to airport well, okay? And it's this constant battle. And the question is, you know, because the airport, it's all about hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. Now here's the deal. When it comes to airporting, there's one trump card. And I'm trying, not trying to be political here. There's one trump card. And the trump card is this. The reason for the flight. Because if I'm going on a flight, say I'm catching a flight to go on a fishing trip with my buddies. That's very different than if I'm catching a flight to go to my sister's wedding. And so depending on what the reason for the flight is will change my mentality towards patient urgency. How much am I willing to hurry up and wait? Those two are very different. Now here's the deal. The more important the reason, the more important it is to prepare ahead. And when it comes to the things of life and death, heaven or hell, Jesus coming back, not coming back, these are the kinds of questions that we must consider with a kind of urgency. We can't just wait till the last minute. We can't take the kinds of risks that I usually like to take at the airport because the reason behind the flight is too important. You see what I'm saying? The reason why we're thinking about these things, the reason why Jesus tells us this parable will inform how we do what we do, how we prepare for the most important flight of life. So we're going to be talking about that today. 
I'll just say this. In most things in life, be like my wife. In most things in life, just do what she does. And she does this very well. Gets to the airport early. She never misses a flight. I've actually never missed a flight, but it's been close. And (laughs) this came up the other day. I I did in a conversation with the group, and I didn't realize many people have missed flights. I have never missed a flight, but I, I have been close. So... Go ahead if you're there with me, and uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 1. This is the parable. Jesus said, Then the kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a loud cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose, trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be not enough for us and for you, Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Then Jesus gives this concluding exhortation. Watch. Therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Would you pray with me and ask that God would open our eyes to this text? Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, that we have the chance to come and gather in community, that we're not alone as we consider these words and what they mean for our life now and our life in the future. We pray that we'd have eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say to us through this parable What is from you, we hope, sticks, and that which is not, may it pass away. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me walk us through this parable, because I I believe there are a few uh, challenging things that, that might not be obvious as you first read it. And the first is this, if you just look at, at verse 1, it says, Then the kingdom of God will be like. Now, If you've been around with us as we've done the other parables, you know that Jesus normally says the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, those are synonymous terms, is like in the present tense, but he uses the future tense here. So what we know is that he's speaking about something yet to come. And it's important with the parables to understand that not every parable is meant to perfectly explain every aspect of the kingdom. There's multiple parables and they each are talking about different parts of the kingdom of God. And so we can't take every parable as an explanation of it all, but this parable is specifically talking about the future aspects of the kingdom which are to come. Now, what is he talking about? Well, for those of you who uh, might not know, I just want to explain what he's saying, generally. And if you looked at the chapter before, chapter 24, Jesus goes into a long discourse talking about the end of the age when he himself will come back to earth 
and he will now come back as a judge and a king, not as the suffering servant. So this is really important to understand about what Christians believe Jesus is versus what other religions might believe their sort of leading prophet is. So Jesus is not just a great teacher or just a prophet or just a good man. They actually, we actually believe that Jesus is the son of God. And he came to earth in order to live a life that we couldn't live and to die a death on the cross in our place for our sin. And then he rose three days later, stayed for 40 days with his disciples, teaching them why he had to die and why he had to rise again. And then he was, that he ascended into heaven where he sits now at the right hand of God. But he always said again and again, I'm coming back in the future, so be ready. And this isn't the only place we see it. We see it time and time again where it says, I'm coming back. This isn't the last you've seen of me. I'm coming back. And so this parable is all about when Jesus comes back. And it's all about being ready for that moment. And it's a future moment. It has yet to happen. So the rest of verse 1 says, I'll read it again. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. In this parable, Jesus is the bridegroom. And this word virgins here, um, this is a more, most literal translation, but a virgin, the word Greek word here could be used in, in, for many things. Um, it was a young woman of marriable age, so somewhere in between 12 and 18 years old, not married yet, uh, which meant, meant that she most likely had not yet um, had sexual intercourse, and so that's why we say virgin. And so she had this sort of chastity, uh, respectability about her. And the reason we can probably be sure of that is that if she didn't, if she had a sort of a, uh, a reputation as not being chaste, then she would probably not have been invited into this particular role in the wedding ceremony because this is an honorable role. So I'm going to go ahead and continue to use the word virgin, even though... Sometimes that word has weird connotations in our culture, but I think it's the best translation. You could also think of these as bridesmaids, also a fair um, translation of the word. Uh, and they had these lamps, so here's basically the scene that's being set up. A wedding ceremony uh, at this time in uh, Israel was a seven-day ceremony. So if your dads are complaining about how expensive your weddings are, you just say, well, at least they're not seven days like it is right here, okay? It's only one day. Dad, give me that money, okay? Send him the sermon if, <laughs> if he needs a little push, okay? It's only one day, but on the very first night of that seven-day span, the groom would come to the bride's house and pick her up and take her back to his house where the remainder of the wedding would happen. And when he came, it was the bridesmaids, the, the, the virgins in this story, it was their job to take these lamps or torches and meet him halfway and escort him in uh, to the bride's house and then sort of follow them processional onto his house. And so the torches were to represent sort of the glory of this new uh, wedding or this new married couple. So it was, a, it was a great honor. It was an important part of the ceremony because it was the first part. And so they would have known this. They would have known the job is keep the torches uh, lit. Uh, you don't want to be the one without lit torches. So uh, 
Everybody knew this. This is um, an important part of the ceremony. Now look at verse 2. It says, Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. What's going on? Well, you need oil to keep the lamps or the torches lit. And you don't know exactly what time the bridegroom is going to come. And so you need to be prepared. And so some are foolish, they don't bring any extra oil, and some are wise, they bring extra oil. And what's important to understand here is that there's not some sort of um, special revelation to the wise. They don't have some sort of insider information about when the groom is coming or that they needed to get more oil. This is sort of common sense. And so it's important to see that the difference between foolish and wise is not one of sort of intellectualism or one of, of secret uh, knowledge, anything like that. It's just one group is kind of lazy and one group has common sense. It seems like in, in, in our culture that common sense is getting a bad rap. Be people of common sense. Use the sense that God's given you. When you look at the world, what's good and right, have common sense. Have common sense to know that details matter. Common sense to know that preparedness matters. Common sense that, to know that duty matters. So these foolish bridesmaids didn't use their common sense to think about the details, to think beyond the moment, and they weren't prepared. It's common sense to prepare for the unexpected. They didn't do it. Now look at verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, and we don't know why he was delayed. We don't know why he didn't come at the time that they thought he would. doesn't really matter because it doesn't tell us. He's just delayed. Plenty of reasons why we could think he's delayed. When he's delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Notice the word all. The foolish became drowsy and slept. And the wise became drowsy and slept. Why is this important? Well, it's important to realize that falling asleep after waiting a long time and it's getting dark and falling asleep is very natural. It's very, very natural. In fact, when I was a boy, I used to always have sleepovers and I used to always try to stay up through the whole night. And every year, I couldn't do it. Anybody do this? Bragging rights were on the line. If you could make it through the whole night, and I'd jack myself full of caffeine and sugar, and I'd be playing video games, trying to keep myself distracted, and I would always fall asleep. And why was this so hard for me? I was just a young kid. Because it's natural to fall asleep in the middle of the night when you have nothing else to do. And so it's a very natural thing that's happening here. And the reason why I'm making a big point of this is that I think sometimes when we might think of, well, what does it mean to be ready for Jesus to come back? What does it mean to be properly prepared for Jesus to come back? We sometimes think, I need these unnatural rhythms of life. I need to be sort of superhuman in order to get prepared. And the answer is, no, you don't. Just be a normal human. Live into the natural rhythms of life. You don't need to get up at 3 a.m. every morning to read your Bible and pray. Now, if that's your habit and you can do that and that's natural to you, great. But most of us, we'd get fired from our job if we were doing that every morning, myself included. You know, you sometimes read about these great saints of old and how they got up so early in the morning. 
But you don't have to do that. Be natural. You also don't have to quit your job and become a pastor or missionary. Have a normal job. Now, if he calls you out of the business world or out of your current profession to do something different, I'd say listen to him. But you don't have to do something unnatural or force the issue in order to be ready for God to come. You just get ready within the normal rhythms of life. So you sleep when it's natural to sleep. You eat when it's natural to eat. Unless for a time of fasting you decide not to. You work when it's natural to work. But you're always remembering that the Lord Jesus can return at any moment. And so you're always preparing your heart. You're always conscious of the fact And you're doing what you can within the normal rhythms of life to prepare yourself. I hope that's freeing for you. I hope you you feel a sense of freedom when when you realize that. That you don't have to be unnatural to be prepared for Jesus coming back. And what you actually see in this parable is that one of the reasons why the wise bridesmaid probably got drowsy and fell asleep is because they were very prepared. So when we prepare well, we should sleep well. I had this uh, pastor when I lived in Dallas who used to say, I wake up in the morning in Arminian, if you know uh, much about theology, which means sort of (laughs) I work hard and then I go to bed at night a Calvinist. What he said is, (laughs) you know, I work as hard as I can for the Lord during my waking hours and then when it's time to go to bed, I'm very comfortable that God is in control. That he's in control of all the work that I've done, all the, all the lives that I hope that he saves. He's in control of that, including my own salvation. And so I sleep like a baby. I love that. Let's look at verse 6 to 9. So they're all asleep. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose, trimmed their lamps, And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the store and buy for yourself. Whoa. Does this surprise you? This should be kind of surprising to you. Isn't the kingdom kingdom of God all about sharing, all about community, all about having things in common? about generosity and giving of what you have. What's going on here? Remember, not every parable is about every part of the kingdom. And this parable is about being ready for Jesus to come again. It's not about generosity. And so what's happening here is they literally don't have enough if they give what they've brought away. And so they say, go, yes, you need to be prepared You need to go buy oil. And the place to get it is at the store. So go get the oil and then come back. And they didn't know, but the bridegroom comes while those bridesmaids are off trying at the last minute to get prepared. So it's not bad advice. They're saying, yes, we told you, you need to be prepared. Now go quick. Hopefully you can get back. But as we'll see, they don't get back. And so what I want to highlight about this, and I, and, I, and I think it's so important to realize this. They say, go and go to the dealers and buy for yourselves. When it comes to our spirituality, when it comes to our relationship with God, when it comes to our salvation, it's about me and God. 
It's about you and God. You cannot ride the coattails of your spouse. You can't ride the coattails of your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You can't ride the coattails of your best friend or your parents or your siblings. You have to get prepared yourself. And they're harsh words. There's not enough. You need to prepare yourself. Go to the store. Hurry. Hopefully you can get back in time. Verse 10. And while they were going to buy, while they were going to get prepared, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Now the marriage feast in all of Scripture is this picture, this epitome of joy. It's joy personified. It's the great wedding feast. And we're told in other places like Revelation that there will be a great wedding feast of the Lamb, of the Son of God, of the Bridegroom. And there's no place that you'd rather be than at the wedding feast. And so those that were ready get to go in, but it says the door was shut. Verse 11. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. I do not know you. Wow. Harsh words. How can you not know me? I'm a bridesmaid. I'm one of your bride's best friends. So what's he getting at here? Well, Jesus has really sort of in the parable switched over and, and, and why they say, Lord, Lord, is because now he's very clearly talking about the kingdom of God and Jesus as the Lord of all. And if you had been reading through the Gospel of Matthew, you would have seen this exact same thing in chapter 7. And in chapter 7 of Matthew, Jesus says something very similar. He says, you go and you do mighty works in the name of God and you go and you cast out demons in the name of God and you go and you prophesy in the name of God and yet at the end of the age you'll come to me and I'll say I do not know you exact same words that we see here and the reason it gives in Matthew 7 of why I say I do not know you is because you did not do the will of the father and it's so confusing when you read that. What? Isn't the will of the Father to do the work of the Father? Isn't the will of the Father to cast out demons and heal people and mighty works and prophesying in his name? Isn't that the will of the Father? The answer is no. The will of the Father is that you know the Son. And once you know the Son, you will do his work. But we can get that flipped around and it becomes very confusing. But I've done all these good things and I'm a good person. And look at all the good I've done in the world. And yet, what? I don't know God? The will of the Father is that you'd know the Son. The kingdom of God is the presence of God. And Jesus is God in the flesh. And so if we do not know him, we do not do the will of the Father. No matter how much good we do in the world. Yes, those are good things, but if they come without knowing Jesus, we've missed the mark. And so one way you might paraphrase this parable is to say, 
The second coming of Jesus ought to excite us beyond words. Literally, we're so excited, our heart is so stirred up with affection for Jesus that we cannot help but prepare, not help but anticipate his coming. And if you've never been stirred up, when you think about Jesus coming back, if you don't feel the excitement of that and just want to yell amen, I'd ask yourself the question, have you actually met Jesus? Now, this isn't, so, isn't some sort of fake emotionality. It's just when I meet Jesus and I think I get to see him again in the flesh when he comes, I should get excited. No matter my temperament, I should get excited. Are you excited about the coming of Jesus? Now, as I read and reread this parable this week, there was a couple things that jumped out at me. A couple of questions that I believe begged to be answered. Whether you're a Christian or you're not yet a Christian, I felt like these were questions that deserve to be addressed, and so I'm going to address them. Two of them. The first is this. Is it fair that this door shuts forever? Is it fair? Many people don't like this part of God's plan. I mean... The five foolish bridesmaids, is it fair that they get shut out? They're bridesmaids. And as you read this story, you might ask those questions. Were the bridesmaids given enough warning of when the groom was coming? Does the punishment fit the crime? Did the bridesmaids know the consequences for their lack of preparedness? And since this story is ultimately about the kingdom of God and heaven and hell and life and death, is it fair that God shuts the door? Has he given humanity enough warning? Has he told us the consequences if we're not prepared? In my own life, I've found that there's just some people that no matter how much warning you give them, no matter how much heads up, they always think you've inconvenienced them when they show up. Do you know people like this? No matter how much warning you give them, they're a little bit pissed that you showed up. And I think if Jesus was standing here, he would look at us, and, and, and almost tongue-in-cheek, he would say, you want to know how much, warn, uh, how much warning's enough, how much head's up? Is 2,000 years enough? Is that enough forewarning? Because that's how much I've given you. I spoke these words 2,000 years ago, and I haven't come yet. I'm still waiting for you to get prepared. 2,000 years, is that enough? Well, you might say, well, not everybody has this warning. Not everybody has this story. What about them? I did a little research. Did you know that 98% of the world's population has this story in a language that they can clearly understand? That 7.2 billion people that have this story in a language that they can understand. Now, there's much work to be, be done because there's 180 million people that do not. So the work continues, and I believe Jesus continues to wait until those people have heard this warning. And they need to explain to them, and they need to know what does it mean to be prepared. And so there's much work to be done. But that seems to me to be an incredible gift from God, a gracious forewarning, a gracious heads up that, hey, I'm coming again. 
And you don't know when, but you better be ready. The other question that I think begs to be asked and answered is this minor miscalculation of not enough oil, doesn't that seem a little bit too much of a punishment to have eternal separation from God? Just for a little bit of a miscalculation, which leads to eternal separation? And so you look at the characters in this story, and you might ask, these are young girls, 12 to 18 years old, and they're respectable because they've been chosen to be a part of this important part of the ceremony, so they're probably very good friends. They're not real catty. They're not mean girls. They're respectable. And probably... They're very pure. Jesus uses the term virgins, and because they were respectable and allowed to be in the ceremony, they probably were. Sexually pure, they were probably chaste. C-H-A-S-T-E. In case you didn't catch, that is not, they weren't chaste, <laughs> they were chaste, okay. And C.S. Lewis, I love what he says, he says, chastity is the most unpopular vir uh, Christian virtue. I think it's true today. I think we'd say sexual purity is probably the most unpopular Christian virtue. And yet these young women are doing it right. They're doing it right. And I did not share this this morning because it was at uh, a different sort of crowd. And I'm going to just share it with you now and just give me some grace if it's uh, rude. But as I read this parable, I thought of Chris Rock reading this parable and looking at it and being like, are you kidding me? Even the virgins don't get into heaven? And I just thought, to most people, they'd read this and they, if anybody gets in, it's got to be them, right? If they don't get in, I'm not getting in. Sorry. <laughs> but what we know and what this teaches us is God's no respecter of persons. He doesn't care how small the mess up is. And what we also know is that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We've all slipped up. No matter how minor or how major, we've all slipped up. And we cannot match the perfection of the holy God. And he makes this exceedingly clear throughout Scripture that the only way to experience the kingdom of God is not through perfection or only minor mess-ups, but it's through a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. Back to this idea of, do you know my son? And we know Jesus through faith. And we know that we know Jesus because of our faith. You say, well, what does this parable have to do with faith? I think it has everything to do with faith. Really? Is there a difference in faith between the five foolish and the five wise? I think the answer is yes. And here's why I think that. Because to have faith, true saving faith in Jesus Christ, in his death and his resurrection, and having that personal relationship with him, true faith means that you trust every word that he spoke. And if you trust every word that he spoke, if you truly trust it, then you'll obey every word that he spoke. 
and you'll obey every word that he spoke because in your trusting him, because of your faith, you believe that he ultimately has your best in mind. Even if you can't see it in the moment, you trust him so that he has your best in mind, and so you do what he says. And one of the things that he said is, I'm coming back, and you won't know when, so be ready at all times. And the wise took that to heart, and they prepared for the unexpected. And the foolish waited, thinking, I'll live in the now, I'll live in the moment, I'll deal with that later. When we hear the words of Jesus, and we don't fully trust them, because our faith is not yet mature, it always leads to complacency and apathy and indifference. When you hear the words of Jesus, what is your response? Do you trust them fully? Do you want to obey them because you know he has your best in mind? It baffles me in our world today at how little we trust people's words. Jesus once said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because when he spoke, 100% of the words he spoke, he believed were true. And he wanted us to believe that they were true. When he said, pick up your cross daily and follow me, he meant daily and follow me. When he said, love your enemies, he meant love your enemies. For you UW fans, that doesn't just mean the Cougars, it also means the Ducks. That's harder for me. When Jesus said, I'm coming back, he meant, I'm coming back. When we fail to believe Jesus when he says what he says, we're neglecting to be ready, and this is an irreversible mistake. But here's the great news, here's the good news, here's the gospel. We've all done this. We've all neglected the words of Jesus. We've all become complacent when we hear him say he's coming back. We've all shown apathy and indifference. We've all had a lack of faith. We've all slipped up. And he hasn't come back yet, so there's still time to get ready, to prepare. That's the good news. But don't wait to do that. Don't say, I'll wait a couple more years. I'll wait until my career gets more settled. I'll wait until my marriage is a little bit stronger. Get ready now. Look at verse 13. This is Jesus' exhortation. He says, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch, which means be alert, be attentive. Don't be lazy. And godly preparedness. We're finally getting back to that Christian paradox. What does it mean to watch well, to wait well? It means to have this combination of urgency and patience. Patience and urgency. And if you think about it as a spectrum, and patience and urgency are right here, and we're trying to sort of mix them together. If we don't stay alert, our urgency, if we tend to kind of maybe lean towards urgency, our urgency will sort of slip into impatience. And when it slips into impatience, what it tends to do is make us selfish and we begin to hurt ourselves and others. 
and we begin to make urgent calls to action and operate out of this assumption that if we don't save the world, it's doomed. And this always leads to frustration and anger and burnout. This is probably my slip. On the other hand, patience, if that's sort of your bent, it has the tendency to slip into indifference. And when patience slips into indifference, we begin to stop believing and hearing from the voice of God. We say God doesn't speak, God doesn't prompt, and we become simply resignated to the fact that the things will be the way they're going to be and there's nothing we can do, and this begins to sound like fatalism. And when patience slips into indifference, to this extreme, it leaves everything in God's hands and it actually strips us and devalues us as God's image bearers of our creative role as stewards of his creation. Don't let that happen. Don't let yourself slip into indifference. And so what we see when we see the wise virgins is that they are finding this great balance in between of patient urgency as they're not impatient. They're not running to the groom's house saying, where are you? Let's get this party started. But they're also not slipping into indifference. They haven't forgotten the great duty and role, and so they're ready and prepared. And this combination leads to their joy. The foolish virgins teach us the opposite. They allow themselves to slip into indifference. And what we see is that godly preparedness, whatever it uniquely looks like for us, it's going to look different for each of us, being prepared. But whatever it is, it cannot be achieved by last-minute adjustments. You cannot achieve true preparedness for the coming of Jesus through last-minute adjustments. We learn this from the parable. And so please, don't wait till the last minute to get prepared. Start preparing now. And if you don't know what preparing now looks like, get into community. Join a fellowship group. Ask somebody who looks like they might know what they're doing. They may not know, but then you two together go find somebody else. And if you still don't know, go talk to Ben Creelman. He'll tell you. His number is, write this down, no. Ask somebody. That's why we do community, to help each other learn what it means to be prepared for the coming of Jesus. And I was reminded this week of kind of this really unique joy of waiting. You say, waiting's the worst. No, it can be actually quite great. My wife, Allie, was out of town for the whole week, and I was waiting for her to come back. I was so expectant and excited because I love my wife. And as you wait for a loved one to return, you feel this ability, if you do it well, to have this paradox at work. I was so excited to see her, but you know what I didn't do? I didn't call her up and say, I bought you a plane ticket, come home early. I can't wait anymore. I didn't slip into that impatience, and I didn't slip into the indifference. Oh, you know, it's not really that big of a deal that she's not here. I don't miss her at all. No, I remember what it's like to have her in the presence of our home. I remember what it's like to eat a meal with her. I remember what it's like to just hold her. I'm excited about her coming back. I'm not indifferent. And so then there's this loving tension. And when she walks in the door on the Friday night, I try to pretend, but I'm so excited. And I see her, and I smell her, and I hear her voice, and I hug her. And there's a joy that is unmatched. 
because I've waited well. This is what I want for you to have in your relationship with Jesus. One, I want you to know who he is. Have you met him? Do you know him? Do you know how great he is? And then I want you to wait patiently but urgently, preparing yourself, thinking about him, learning about him, praying to him, worshiping him as we wait for him to come back, because he's coming back. This is our Savior. He's the one who went to the cross and died for my sin and put it on himself and took it to the grave and rose three days later so that I might have new life. This is who's coming back. It should excite us. And when he comes back, I want you to have confidence to run to him and say, I'm so glad that you're here. And then our Redeemer will finish the work that he's already begun in the world and in our life. And that's exciting. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so humbled by the fact that you want to come back. You've been here already, and we killed you, but yet you want to come back because you want to finish the work that you started. You want to put back together everything that we've broken, both in our personal lives and in all the world. And so we thank you that you don't give up on us, that you promise that you're coming back, that you promise that if we prepare ourselves, we too can come into the wedding feast of the bridegroom and celebrate the great joy which is eternal life with you. Would you help us to see and be excited about that tonight as we worship your name, the great name of Jesus, in whom we pray, amen.